Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, a podcast by American Moment. My name is... Wait a minute, that's not my line. (laughs) My name is Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Emma Posey, the Coalition's Manager. And we have a fantastic show for you today. Uh, Today, we're joined by Aaron Wren, who is the uh, brilliant mind behind The Masculinist, a podcast and... Uh, newsletter uh, which has radicalized many men across the internet um and so, Air- <laughs> and, so <laughs> and so naturally the episode where we're talking about masculinity they decided to bring a woman on to do it justice yeah well i, I so the reason why we wanted to bring you on i feel like i have to justify myself now <laughs> is that you and i both grew up in the protestant tradition i feel yeah. like if we had had sarab on this show it would have been a little more like pro- like Catholic justification, like no, we're actually really great guys. Yeah. Keep listening to yeah. us. Yeah, well, you know, if we if we just <laughs> made the Pope the president, it would all be fine. <laughs> you know, it's listen. I love doing the podcast with Sarab. Uh, you know, I, I yeah. we have a great many Catholic friends in the movement. Uh, many of whom get name checked today between Sarab Amari, Adrian Vermeule. Um, you know, there there are many others that we right. talk about. Um. I think it's important to get a Protestant point of view. Uh, I know there are a lot of Protestants that listen to this podcast, um, basically just my friends. Like <laughs> there, there are many others uh, yeah. uh, in D.C., but I think it's important to have a uh, Protestant uh, point of view. We right. had a really great conversation with Aaron today. You know, we had a lot of notes that we really wanted to go through about um, Protestantism, what it means to be a man, the history of conservatism. Uh, and you know, he's a former city planner. So we wanted to get through some of the, some of the infrastructure stuff. He was such a good guest. We only got through the first two, uh, (laughs) we got through what it means to be a man and like the, the, you know, history and future of conservatism in America or of Protestantism in America. Um, it was, it was a fantastic episode. Uh, what did you think, Emma? Yes, I absolutely adored this episode. So Aaron has been one of my favorite podcasters um, ever since he started the Masculinist podcast. And so to have him on the show today was a great honor. Like Nick and I were both just talking about like this man has had such an incredible impact on our life and on our development. Um, And even like seeing the men in my life who have listened to his teachings, who have taken what he said to heart and have genuinely like grown into courageous, strong, godly men um, and just such an incredible way that you don't see in a lot of places of society. Society. Um, yeah, it was a great episode. Um, not only did we talk about masculinity, but we talked a lot about the home and like the relationships between men and women and sort of the redefinition of what it of what the home's role is in society. Um, and especially with recent policy conversations on the topic, I thought it was incredibly time timely and insightful. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I don't want to deify the guy, right? Like, it, it, it's really cool to sit across from him. But for real, Aaron radicalized a lot of my friends, uh, you know, into becoming the men that they are today. Uh, and those men in turn, uh, radicalized me, you know, maybe I'll be put on a list for using that word. Um, but to give his official bio, uh, Aaron Wren is an opinion leading urban analyst 
consultant, speaker, and writer on a mission to help America's cities and people thrive and find real success in the 21st century. He focuses on urban economic development and infrastructure policy in the greater Midwest, and he also regularly contributes to and is cited by national and global media outlets. He's a columnist for Governing Magazine, and his work has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, along with many others. Wren was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute from 2015 to 2019, which we talk about uh, in this episode, and is a contributing editor at its quarterly magazine, City Journal. Prior to his work in public policy, Wren had 15, year, 15 years of business experience in management and technology consulting, where he was a partner at Accenture. He also founded the urban data analytics software platform, Telestrian, which continues to underpin his work on cities. So with that, we will go to our guest, Aaron Wren. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So kind of as a first question, uh, we like to ask all of our guests, uh, tell us a little bit more about your background. Uh, you know, you're pretty well known across the internet for uh, the masculinist, uh, for the newsletter and, and, and the podcast. Uh, tell us a little more how you got where you are and how that came about. Yeah, well, I like to say, like, I'm like a living example that the American dream, as endangered as it is, is still alive for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, this country's given me a lot of opportunity, and I want to give more opportunity to even more people. But I actually uh, am from rural southern Indiana. I am from Catholic peasant stock on both sides of my family, as I like to say. But uh, I was actually uh, raised in a uh, rural Pentecostal, the Assemblies of God environment. Uh, so basically came of age really in the Reagan era. Uh, so, you know, my kind of first memories are from the Carter administration. Don't really remember, um, don't really remember, um, you know, Ford or the Watergate or Vietnam. But I remember the Iran hostage crisis. I remember a little bit of disco. Mm. The Cold War was big. And, you know, I was a big Ronald Reagan fan. And so, uh, you know, a lot, maybe a lot of my early conservative politics came from just a very basic talking point conservatism that I was raised in there. I went to college and then went off to Chicago. I uh, lived in Chicago for a long time working in the consulting field. So I was in uh, corporate and technology consulting for many years. And that's really the framework and the professional heritage that informs a lot of the work that I do. So I, you know, I really bring uh, a way of helping people understand the world that we live in, which is something that, you know, people, people are hungry for frameworks. Like the world is crazy. How do I understand what's going on? And that's a lot of what I try to do in my work. And I was doing that work and um, it was sort of growing a little bit disenchanted with it because my work had essentially devolved from, you know, moving, uh, moving work from one low cost country to an even lower cost country. And I said, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So I started writing a blog as a creative outlet. It was called The Urbanophile, The Lover of Cities. And I really felt that I had some things to say about the American Midwest that nobody else was saying. That was a region of the country, the Rust Belt. It, now it's on everybody's agenda. Yeah. But, you know, back in the 2000s, it was sort of overlooked. Nobody was thinking about it. And I said, we, we need to think about the Midwest. We need to think about the Rust Belt and the cities that are in it because it's important and nobody else did it. So I started writing that and it really just took off. It really took off. I said, well, you know, I started getting calls from people who were, you know, like heads of departments and state government. I said, wow, this is kind of cool. Maybe there's a career there. So ended up uh, leaving my consulting company 
and uh, decided to reinvent myself as, you know, essentially an urban kind of infrastructure economic development strategy consultant and ended up at the Manhattan Institute mm -hmm. where I, I did uh, work on urban policy there for about five years. Uh, and so that was really an, a great experience. And then as I was studying these Rust Belt cities, you know, I started to get the sense that a lot of these problems go beyond infrastructure. They go beyond any economy and they really get to human problems, really spiritual problems. A lot of these places have, in essence, a spiritual crisis. And if you look at, you know, the family dynamics of, you know, out of wedlock births and, you know, family breakdown or lack of marriages, all the stuff that's happening, all the dysfunction that hit these communities that used to be quite socially functional when I was growing up, uh, you know, I really decided I need to engage upstream. And so I started the masculinist is really a way to engage, you know, it, it, upstream of, of some of the problems in these cities. And also I saw, you know, as, during the Trump campaign and as things were coming around there that, you know, man, all these young men are turning to all these like online men's gurus. And of course, later Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan became gigantic, but there was a smaller than Milo Yiannopoulos was big back in the day. And it was like, why are these young men turning here for answers, not turning to the church? Mm -hmm. And so I started The Masculinist, which was a newsletter, uh, which I've now sort of turned into my main venture. Uh, and, it, and that's really kind of one of my missions, helping men, uh, you know, succeed and thrive in life, creating more families, more successful families, and helping the church, especially the, you know, the Protestant church where I, where I am today, I'm Presbyterian today, and uh, really kind of make sense of the world that we're in and navigate a very different era uh, than, say, the, the old uh, Pat Roberts and Jerry Falwell era of, of back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so interesting. And you've obviously struck a nerve with your podcast and with the newsletter that you've been doing. And so in one of your newsletters, you actually make this fascinating distinction between being um, it's possible possible to be good at being a man without being a good man. And you sort of use Donald Trump versus David Fringe as the two embodiments of that that are really fascinating to look through. So as we're talking about your um, newsletter with the masculinist, can you tell us about like how you conceive of what it means to be a man today? First, like scripture's understanding of man versus the cultural understanding of manhood and sort of like where did the two converge? Where do they differ, like diverge in our society? Right. Well, you know, concern about kind of loss of masculinity is a longstanding feature yeah. of kind of industrial society. So people have been complaining about this going back to the 19th century. So a lot of the, uh, the muscular Christianity movements, you know, that came out of things like the YMCA and things like that were actually created in part because this idea, you know, men are getting soft. They're not working these long hours on the farm anymore. And so this, this idea that, you know, the, you know, we've declined from some golden age. I mean, that's a perennial theme in human history. And so mm -hmm. I don't want to suggest where it's some unique moment because you can, you can oversell it, but, but there has been this idea, I think in modern society, particularly after the sexual revolution, that it's really up for grabs what it means to be a man today in this world. It's right. it's not really completely, you know, understood. Right. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people have tried to, you know, the, a lot of churches try to engage with things like promise keepers, et cetera. And there's all these teachings about what it is to be a man. And so I like to go back to a, a very interesting book by a, a professor named David Gilmore. It's called Manhood in the Making. And he did essentially a, an anthropological look at all these cultures around the world. You know, it could be in the uh, Pacific Islands, could be Spain, could be South America, could be China, could be America, all over the place. And said, how did these cultures define manhood? 
what did it mean to be a man in those cultures? And uh, basically he said, you know, there are a lot of attributes that were there, but uh, this is, you might call it the natural law uh, approach to, to what a man is. What, what, what did we see when we study manhood throughout history that's sort of the natural way that manhood has evolved? And there were a few things. One of them is that you had to be essentially like a protector of your community. Mm -hmm. So you had to be willing to fight in battle and, and that was the key. So you have to be out there physically proving yourself in battle. You have to be a provider. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to, uh, you know, kill the animals. You're a hunter-gatherer. You have to be able to hunt. You have to kill. You have to produce. Mm -hmm. And I think this is often translated into essentially providing for your wife and children uh, today. But it was a much bigger conception of that, mm -hmm. that the man doesn't just provide to, to, to feed his family He's a surplus producer that's building up his community. He's essentially creating civilization by overproducing more than he and his family needs. Mm -hmm. And that spills over into the community. And then um, having children. So you, you could think of that as you know, procreation. Um, you, you know, actually, there's a great site out there. I'm not the only one writing about Art of Manliness. You've probably seen it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, yeah. He, he turned Gilmore's thing into, into this provide, procreate, um, uh, uh, protect thing and, and so that's it but the other thing is i think the key about manhood is manhood was always an earned status so mm -hmm. you actually have to perform in order to be a man you don't just you grow up and you're a man so you had basically maybe pass out go through a rite of passage mm -hmm. um you had to do these things you had to uh demonstrate you know be you had to be in the arena mm -hmm. you had to be willing to, to to prove yourself in competition with other men in the public eye Right, so if you're kind of a homebody who who doesn't like to be in competition, you're not a man. You have to demonstrate energy. You mm. have to demonstrate autonomy. You have to be able to be autonomous facts. There's all these things that are there. So there's like this this three P's thing, and then there's all these other characteristics. Right. And so I think this idea that you're kind of out there, you know, killing the animals, fighting the battles, winning status competitions with other men, mm -hmm. you have a lot of autonomy, a lot of energy. You're producing at a high level, surplus. Those sorts of things really go into what has historically, um, historically been a man. Now, if you look at what the church teaches today, it generally doesn't get into those points, mm -hmm. you know, except as much as, you know, it's sort of a chivalry. You know, protection is kind of now, you know, chivalry. You know, women and children first, getting off the ship. Mm -hmm. You know, provision is you know making a paycheck to feed your wife and kids. Right. Uh, and, you know, the idea of being in competition with other men, that's, that's just not there. So I think a lot of it's kind of missing. And I think it was actually Brett McKay from Art of Manliness who had the line about you could be good at, at being a man without being a good man. And that mm -hmm. the, the characteristics of what makes – it's like being a basketball player. We can think about that. You could be a great basketball player and be like a lousy human being. Right. Conversely, being a great human being doesn't make you a good basketball player. And it's sort of like that with, with manhood. There are these characteristics. You could be like a really nice guy. You could be a moral person, but kind of be kind of pathetic at being a man. Yeah. Whereas you could be, and a classic example might be like a mob boss, right? Or, or a criminal kingpin. You could be uh, you could be great at all that what it means to be a man, but not be a good man. You could be that. So I think those, you know, there's kind of two characteristics. And I think that that conflating of those kinds of characteristics, mm -hmm. these conflating two things into one, I think is really at the root of a lot of the, you know, the things that, uh, you know, mislead men today in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. that this, um, like you said, this process is very historical, right? There's that, uh, you know, thing that people say that, uh, 
you know, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create good times, whatever it is. Right. Um, and I certainly think that's true. Uh, I think the thing that's that's changed in modern day, though, is, is you know, with the advent of the Internet, uh, it's kind of an instantaneous place for people to to air their grievances. Uh, and and right. certainly the Internet is a great tool. Um, you know, uh, a lot of my friends who have who have. Uh, you know, taught me all the things that I know uh, have come through the internet, um, you know, Sarab included. Right. Um, well, I mean, you're here today because of the right. internet. Yeah, because of the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's so true. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of people turn to the internet because the internet is more of a, a presence in our day-to-day lives uh, than, than the church is. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the failings uh of of the church and and you know not even maybe necessarily including the catholic church but even just the the protestant uh you know Mm -hmm. denominations how have they failed uh men of the west today yeah i would say there are two main ways that has happened Mm -hmm. number one is that they have essentially demonized men Mm. i'll talk a little bit about that (laughs) in a minute secondly is that they're you know they're giving out bad information essentially so on, on the demonization of men this has been documented academically. There's a great mm-hmm. book called The Death of Christian Britain by a British uh, professor named Callum Brown. Mm-hmm. And you know he, his, it's actually a book about secularization, but he goes back and basically says that around 1800, there was really a shift in how gender and godliness were perceived. Mm-hmm. And, and prior to that time, you know, piety had been viewed as a kind of a male attribute. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, in arts, angels were portrayed as male figures. After this figure, uh, piety shifts to a sort of female register. Mm-hmm. You know, angels start being portrayed as more feminine or right. female in, in character. And so what happens is essentially women start to be seen as naturally moral guardians of the domestic sphere and men tend to increasingly be seen as the source of society's problems Mm. and he doesn't go into the to why the shift happens but i do believe it was probably related to industrialization Mm. and you're moving into these cities and you know things like you know husbands you know gambling away their paycheck or things like that really did become a problem so i think there was actually a response to legitimate social problems at that time but he talks about how the evangelical literature of that era, one of its biggest influences, even in secular society, was its demonization of men. Hmm. The man is the threat to the home. The right. man is the drunk. He's the gambler. He's getting in fights. And the woman is sort of naturally virtuous. And this way of portrayal of men basically goes all the way through to the present day. I mean, it's, it's very clear right. uh, in the way that, that they talk about things. The other thing is, um, and I, I would not reverse that, by the way. I wouldn't say that like women are necessarily the, the problem either. I think I think there's plenty of sin to go around between, <laughs> between men and women. Right. Uh, uh, what I would say, though, is the other thing is they give out kind of bad information. Right. So there's a you know very uh, big name Southern Baptist uh, pastor named Matt Chandler, oh, and yeah. one of his you know blog posts he has says, "I keep saying it, godliness is sexy to godly people." Well, is that really true? Well, what does Jordan Peterson say? Jordan Peterson says women are attracted to boys who win status competitions with other boys. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, oh, I'm the captain of the football team, the girls are going to like me, right? Right. And this goes back to that idea of competition, male competition, proving right. yourself in the arena. And so the reality is godliness is not a sexy characteristic. 
Right. So right. it's like, so they usually, you know, tell, oh, you know, women in church, they want this man who's on fire for God, all this stuff. <laughs> but again, they conflate two yeah. things. They conflate what makes someone a high quality man to marry and what makes him attractive. Mm. And it's the same thing for women. You know, there, yeah. there may be women, if you're a guy, you get it. Okay, there's, there's women I think are like really good looking, but right. they're terrible. I'd never marry them. Vice versa, she's just, oh, this woman could be amazing. I'm not really right. not really into her. And so you have to have both. You have to be attractive and you have to be high quality marriage material. And they sort of merge those into one. And it's like women should be attracted to all these sort of godly characteristics, but that's not really what drives it. We know what drives attraction, right? right? It's, it's power and status. It's confidence and charisma. It's looks and style. It's, you know, it's money. It's things like that that drive attraction. Right. And then the other things are sort of, um, you know, compatibility filters and the like. So that's just some examples of like the bad yeah. information. Yeah. And then the sort of the, you know, the demonization, uh, the demonization. We can go, we can ask some examples <laughs> of that if you'd like to. Yeah. One, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, speaking about examples, right? Like I just, we didn't get a chance to talk about this before uh, the podcast, but I just recently got engaged like oh, three weeks ago. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. I'm glad I, we have the. Uh, these, uh, these here to yeah, we can celebrate. celebrate. We, can, we can even toast. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Um, but uh, it's one of those things where um, my fiance is beautiful. She's much smarter than me. Um, you know, you we can attest to We remind that. him of this consistently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much smarter than me. Like, you know, she's, she's fantastic. But she has never... Um, you know, publicly, like, been in a relationship before. And I was pondering about this, you know, a couple of months into our relationship, and I asked her, I said, I said, what's the, like, why were you never, I mean, you're you're 23 years old, you know, why had you never really, like, seriously dated anyone here in D.C.? And she was like, no one confidently asked until, right. like, you yeah. came up and said, hey, um, yeah. I'm going to take you for a ride around the monuments on my motorcycle, and we're going to go get Spanish tapas. <laughs> and she was like, that. That sounds like a good trade off, right, right. you know? Um, and so I think it's I think it's certainly one of those things where uh, when you get one of the things right, it all kind of starts to come together. Yeah. So I, you know, in the in the like six months before um, she and I started dating about a year ago, so about a year and a half ago, um, I started going to church mm -hmm. and then I got involved in a Bible study. Yeah. And then I lost 70 pounds, you know, started wow, eating great. right. No small feet to say started, the least. Started working out and all these things started to come together. So we start dating, you know, I ask her to like go steady. I ask her to be my girlfriend. Yeah. And then, man, she's really going to hate me. For telling <laughs> this. But, 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 you know, we get to this point where she's like, you're, you're so, you're so like different. Where, where does, where does, where does this come from? And it, for me, it's just like, oh yeah, I just I I believe in Christ, and I and I read this book uh, called the Bible, and yeah. I like <laughs> seriously take into account everything that it says. Right. Um. And I the the only thing the only piece that I feel like is missing here is I got into that by, mm -hmm. um, you know, with wise counsel from some of my you know brothers in Christ who know who they are. Uh, they they'll be listening to this. Um. But the church didn't really play much of a role right. in 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 any of that. Yeah. Um. You know, there 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 are men's groups, but a lot of it seems to be dedicated to uh, the teaching of some of this anti-man stuff. Like yeah. you need to be more docile. You need to be more, yeah. you know, respectful. You need to, you know, let your wife work a seventy-hour job. You know, mm -hmm. for a very low wage or whatever. <laughs> um. There's not like 
you know, men's weightlifting groups, you know, in Protestant churches. There's not, um, you know, like men's diet groups or even right. men's like, hey, how, wh what is being a, a, a man, um, right. you know, in a biblical context actually mean? Yeah. So to get off my soapbox, um, yeah. what specifically uh, can Protestant churches be doing? I mean, is it men's group? Is is it, you know, uh, something deeper than that to kind of revitalize a generation of men who yeah. are believers right. in Christ, but but don't have their own identity? Right. Right. Well, that's a great story. So congratulations again. I think that's excellent. And those are all great questions to be asking. Here's what I would say. Number one, the pastors need to stop giving out misinformation, right? So they mm. need to educate themselves. Right on reality and stop saying things that aren't accurate. You know, secondly, they need to end the demonization, the constantly berating, and right. they need to be, take a much more realistic, balanced view of that. But right. when it comes to like giving advice on weightlifting, this is where I think the Protestant church has gotten a little bit off track because everybody goes to look to the pastor to give the authoritative Christian right. view on, on X. Right. Like politics is a classic example. We want, you know, the pastors to tell us like all about politics, be politically engaged. The truth is that's not their expertise, right? Right. They've gone to seminary. They know Greek and Hebrew. They know all this theology. Right. What do they know about weightlifting? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't know much about weightlifting, right? Yeah. They don't know much about diet. They don't necessarily know much about politics. They don't right. know much about business. I think what is really needed is lay, kind of lay Christians in these environments yeah. stepping up in their areas of expertise, right. providing that expertise as expertise, but doing it from a, you know, implicitly Christian perspective. Right. So I don't think we need the equivalent of Christian rock music. Yeah. Okay. Where we, we, you know, I need to have Christian weightlifting. No, I just need to have weightlifting. But if I'm a Christian and I'm a weightlifting expert and I'm running an online forum for weightlifting or I'm running a gym, then my values are going to come through in that. So right. like, if you know, um, Mark Ripito, if you ever heard that name, he's, he wrote a book called starting strength. He's the big, biggest name in promoting barbell lifting. So squats, deadlifts, and all that. <laughs> That's yep. awesome. In that community, he's out in Tulsa or something. And he's like a libertarian kind of guy. Right. Yeah, I don't know that well. He's kind of libertarian. Right. And so that world tends to be a little libertarian because this yeah. guy's libertarian and he's yeah. talking about weightlifting, but you know, it's just along with the weightlifting, get a little right. libertarian, a little libertarian politics. Right. And I think that's one thing is it, it's much more implicit, you know, rather than, you know, right. rather than thinking, um, you know, what do I have to do? You know, what, what does the Bible teach about X? Right. You know, a lot of times we need to be thinking like, you know, what does it mean to be like an expert in that everywhere? Because in the, pro I mean, I think in the Protestant world, we tend to, to try to immediately refer to scripture and scripture is the ultimate source of truth, right. which it is. But scripture doesn't tell us anything about a lot of things. Right. There's nothing in the Bible about dating. Right. There's nothing in the Bible about how to repair a flapper valve on your toilet. There's nothing about how to do any of this stuff. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, there are principles to the extent that the Bible speaks on something. Right. And so, you know, uh, you know, the Catholics have their natural law theology and different mm -hmm. things. And, you know, Protestantism has a tradition of essentially uh, its own version of natural law, but it's not as much, you know, it's not as much talked about. And so I think we need to think about we need to think right. about what we can what we can learn, and so I think there needs to be much more, you know, lay leadership. I'm really struck hmm. that if you go out to the men's self improvement landscape 
on the internet, which is where a lot of these guys sort of are. Jordan Peterson, you would think of as, as kind of a that. Yeah. yeah. You know, everything from Jordan Peterson on the more anodyne front to, you know, the pickup artists on the negative, right? So, yeah. But I don't know very many of those people who are obviously Christian or writing from a Christian perspective. In fact, right. most of them tend to start with what I call the, a version of the, the, the uh, Anthony Robbins Awaken the Giant Within. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of a vaguely Nietzschean, you need to rely on yourself, right. internally change your own thing and, you know, develop yourself. And then you can, you can impose your will on the world. You can accomplish all this, but it's all rooted in self. Mm-hmm. So you just see, well, that's not really a Christian. Not to say that, you know, yes, it's, I do have to be disciplined in my eating and my working out and right. all those things. But the idea that the source of change is self, right. tapping into your, so your, your self, that's an implicit theological claim. Right. And so that's what I mean by all of it is from implicit foundations that are non-Christian. And so right. to the extent that people are giving you advice that's actually useful, well, man, this guy really did help me get in shape. This person really did help get women to go out on dates right. with me. But those sorts of things are so primal that once, you know, especially like dating, mm-hmm. once somebody tells you like how to have success with members of the opposite sex, you're going you're gonna to think that person's a prophet. <laughs> you yeah. know, really. Yeah. And that's the truth. So I feel like, I feel like just having like basic expertise, deli- you know, delivered right. from you know, you know, a Christian foundation, but it's not necessarily the, the Christian singles group, right? You know, or, you know, we're the Christian weightlifting group. Mm-hmm. How about right. like I'm really good at weightlifting, or we have a great community, and that is sort of implicit in there. So mm-hmm. that's some of what what I think. I think we put too much expectation on professional theologians and pastors mm-hmm. to speak to these issues when it's really outside their area of expertise, right. and in fact. The misinformation comes mostly because they're talking about things they don't know anything about. Right. They're opining on stuff right. that they haven't studied. They haven't looked right. at the, the psychological and sociological literature on attraction right. or any of that stuff. Right. And so they're just kind of like, they're just kind of talking, you know, which they would never do in, in theology. So right. I want them to kind of stick to their knitting a little bit more. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and the rest of us have to step up. Right. And that's one of the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. Right. Is I'm like, I have to step up. I always say I operate in the genre of cultural criticism. Mm-hmm. I am not a Bible, authoritative Bible teacher, theologian. Mm-hmm. You know, I might, uh, you know, mention the Bible here, or there, say a few things, but like, right. you know, I'm not trying to be your substitute pastor. He's the yeah. theologian. He's the authority yeah. on those things. I'm right. doing these other things. I'm right. helping you make sense of the world. I'm doing this stuff. That's right. That's where my expertise lies. Right. And this is where then the importance of discipleship intergenerationally and even yeah. in different mm-hmm. fields comes in and is so important. Um, a small note. So we always um, pick on my father for this, um, but he absolutely loves World War One and Two. Mm-hmm. And if he has his way, he will come home, turn on a documentary and will be like, Dad, like, spoiler alert, we know how it ends. And right. he's like, no way, but you don't understand what the Germans are going to do this time. <laughs> and like, there's this part of him that comes alive and watching these documentaries that like, I don't see in other parts of his life and I've heard him talk about when I was growing up like if there had been the chance to go and fight in a war like he would have done it and like that's I mean thankfully on the one hand that hasn't been a reality like I'm incredibly thankful for that but on the other hand there's this very real sense that like there's a sense of adventure and like a manly assertion in society and protecting your own and providing for your family that seems yeah that just seems so lost and lost within the church so then you have church leaders um especially in like protestant uh non-denom or like contemporary services who were very feminized so like they wear like skinny jeans they have their (laughs) long shirts on and are like very like they're like they're very built right like they're very built and they're very physically attractive 
but like the maybe a little metrosexual. Yeah, met- yeah. like completely. <laughs> which like that term? Yeah. yeah, we still use it right. So like it's attractive to like a subsect, but like you're leaving out like the rest of this like society of men who like who aren't going to wear skinny jeans. Thank goodness, dad, please don't wear skinny jeans. Um, and are going to who are seeking this like true embodiment of masculinity in that. And so what's really interesting, I did study theology in my undergrad along with political science. And when we study the New Testament, Paul writes a lot on humility, right? And so like be humble, like Christ was humble, like all of Philippians. And what's so interesting about that is in like the actual like modern context, humility was not a virtue. It was a vice. And it was something that as a Roman, as a Greek, like you did not want to be humble because it was a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. But in like the progression of scripture and like our Western lens, like Mm -hmm. we've like lifted humility as like, this is the ideal. So like Mm -hmm. if you're not soft-spoken and humble, like, are you really a strong Christian? Um, And so, yes, it's interesting. So like Nick and I both attended um, Protestant institutions and for me in order to be in leadership you had to go through this leadership class and you studied servant leadership and like you had to go through the books and like that like that sort of model was like pounded upon men and women alike of like this is what it means to yeah this is what it means to embody it and we know that you've written on this topic some so like what are your thoughts and critiques on this idea of servant leadership especially when it comes to this conversation on masculinity well first i'm glad you brought up paul I want yeah. to talk about Paul for a minute. <laughs> the thing about Paul that's so awesome, if, if, if you go and read the Bible, one of the things you realize that's an underappreciated about him is this was one physically and mentally tough guy. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's in prison. He's getting shipwrecked. He's getting beaten. Right? He was stoned and left for dead. They left. They thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. And he recovered. I mean, think about a guy like that. Think about the physicality of how tough this guy was. Mm-hmm. And then I don't remember the exact passage where he's talking about all his, you know, his anxieties. I, I think about all the weight of responsibility, all the prayers and all the problems I got in all these churches and all mm-hmm. this heresy over here and, you know, these problems over here, unity issues here. And like he's constantly being pressured. And oh, by the way, like you read like Second Corinthians, he's got false teachers coming in trying to like say, uh, actually, don't listen to Paul, listen to us. So he's fighting all these battles with all these people. And like the guy was just tough. I mean, the toughness of that guy is dramatically underrated. And I think especially physical, physical toughness counted for a lot with a guy like Paul. He wasn't just smart. He wasn't just a spiritual giant. This guy was strong in every aspect of what he was right. doing. Servant leadership is one of the things that's very well packaged because who can be opposed to servant leadership, <laughs> right? And I'm in, in its proper context, I'm not. I think the idea of servant leadership is a good one, that leadership is should be done in the service of some objective greater than yourself. Right. You know, you're, you're leading an organization, you're leading your family, you're leading a country, you're leading in order to serve, theoretically, right. the, pe- the people that, that you're there. The problem comes in the way that's defined. Mm-hmm. And so in, a, in the context of, uh, for example, Protestant marriage theology, where they often, uh, a lot of these conservative Protestants will say, yes, the husband is the head of the home, but to be the, to be the head, to be the leader is to be a servant. Yeah. And they'll talk about, for example, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Yeah. And so I, I always like that example because the disciples, Peter didn't want his feet washed. <laughs> Jesus said, actually, I have to wash your feet or you're, you're not with me. And so the key was, the right. thing they always leave silent is, 
what service is actually to be rendered mm. right and who decides if you're doing a good job mm. and there's so there's like a lot of there's like a lot of the the things that are left silent so mm. if you look at how they define it it's generally saying oh you always put you know your wife's preferences and, and needs ahead of your own uh that's number one your your goal is to essentially uh you know kind of you know serve your wife serve your kids you know, help out with the kids, mow the grass, do all that stuff. Um, it's it's not it's very different um, than I think you know, you know, servant leadership in the case of Christ, where he determined the service that was there. Right. And in fact, he was actually not really trying to. He was there to serve, but he was also carrying out his father's instructions. He was trying to please the father mm. primarily. Right. And so, a lot of times, there's this dichotomy in some of these marriage books. It's like, well, do you want to serve yourself or do you want to serve your wife? Yeah. And it's like, well. If you present it like that, it's like, I like to use this analogy from a certain conservative politician. Are you with us or are you with the terrorists? <laughs> That's the, 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 when you frame it, there's only two choices. It's a right. false dichotomy. Right. Maybe there are some actual choices in there we didn't use. Right. Maybe the choice, maybe there could be a choice for mission, for example. Mm-hmm. And the example I always like to use is Tim Keller, uh, who was the uh, founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, hugely successful church in New York. Yeah. He's sitting in Philadelphia. He's a seminary professor. This is in the 80s. New York is a war zone. This is pre-Giuliani. Mm-hmm. He's got three right. kids. He's got a cushy job. And they try to convince him to start this church in New York. And three other people, I think, had already turned it down. Multiple other people had turned yeah. it down. And they had tried once before to start a church. This denomination had tried before to start a church and it failed. Mm-hmm. And they asked him, start this church. And so I, I like to frame that situation. Did he make the decision to please himself or did he make the decision to please his wife? Right. Neither. He said, I'm going to go on mission. We're going in. Right. And that's an example of what I call, you know, he's not a conventionally macho guy. Right. But he's a guy that says, I'm going into a very difficult assignment everybody's going to be seeing what I'm doing. If I flop, if I fail, right. everybody's going to know it. If I fall flat on my face, right. he went into the arena and he succeeded in a very difficult environment. Right. And so I think that's the sort of thing that I think of as a form of servant leadership mm-hmm. that falls completely outside of the traditional conception. And so I think it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a, uh, a phrase that I think really depends on how you define it. Right determines like how valid it is. And I think we also, people tend to forget leadership is a service. Right. You know, right. I mean, it, it, it is, it is a responsible, it, you're providing a service by right. leading. Yeah. Right. That's one of the things that you're actually doing. Well, what? and well, one, and one quick note to the story of Tim Keller and his wife, which I think is important to represent like both he and his wife mm-hmm. in this, when he was originally asked, he more or less like turned to Kathy, his wife and was like, okay, what do you think? And yeah. her like gut reaction was like, I am absolutely <laughs> not raising my three boys in New York city. This right. isn't happening. And so he was like, okay, then like, we don't need to go. Like, let's talk about it. And she stopped and she was like, no, like you are like the man of this house. Like you were my husband and like, you were the one making the decision here. And like, I'm going to follow you and support you in this I'm not making the call and right. so like the way that she was able to support him in that leadership position and in his role um, I just think it's huge and so they call it like one of the manliest things that yeah. he's done to yeah, this day w- it, w- it was right and now, yeah exactly now I would say he shouldn't have probably waited for her to give him the okay he probably should have been a little right. more well, he probably okay. should have been so over true was, but that's I, just but the I, way they present but the but story I think, but so. I, think it's, I think you're right on that yeah. and I think that um, you know the thing that I also like about them their, their model of marriage 
And you often see this in, you see this often in the pastoral ministry, and you right. often see this in politics, mm. is essentially the husband and wife are a joint team working right. on a project together. Right. You know, she, I think, was the original director of communications for the church. She does all mm-hmm. these, all these little things. And, right. um, you know, one time I, uh, you know, I attended there and I was having this, this, uh, this meal with them afterwards. Mm. And she made some comment about the sermon. She brought up another scripture that he hadn't mentioned. He's like, you know what? That's a good one. I'm going to incorporate that into the, the later services. Yeah. And so they're really an incredible team working right. on this. You often see it in politics as well. You know, I think about, again, Bill and Hillary Clinton, whatever mm-hmm. you think of them politically, right. that's a team, you know, yeah. Barack and Michelle Obama are a team. So this, um, you know, and you often see, like, even in a lot of churches, like the husband or wife or co-pastors, or they're, right. they're this. The, the pastor's wife is always playing a key role in the church. And I right. think it's almost like a pre-industrial idea where you have essentially a household business enterprise where the whole family's involved. Right. The kids yes. are often involved. Right. And the business is often passed down to the kids. And I think yes. in a lot of ways, that's a healthier pattern of living than yes. the way that we do things today because... I mean, imagine, you know, you get to work with your spouse on building something together. I think that's like a great, right? That that's actually relationship really obviously stressful in a lot of ways and right. you know, certainly puts stress on your in marriage. I'm not saying that like it couldn't go wrong. It could, it could go south, but it's right. also, I think the historic norm that right. you had this sort of joint enterprise. Yeah. It was your household. Right. And now the household has a little bit been reduced to a consumption you know, cooperative and like right. things like that. So we don't, we, our, our homes aren't really for much. We just got to hang out there when we're not doing the quote unquote important stuff. Right. Yeah. So this is something that I learned, uh, you know, on the, on the mission field. For those of you that don't know, uh, my parents are missionaries in Honduras and I kind of grew up, um, you know, both in Honduras, but also on the fundraising trail, mm-hmm. right? That's always, <laughs> that's always something that happens, uh, particularly with uh, non-denominationally affiliated right. uh, missionaries is that they end up, uh, well, and you know, cute little ginger kids to send out there and be like, "Will you please give my parents money?" And yeah, like, well, and that and that's the thing. I'm an, o- I'm an only child. They only got one shot, you know. So, um, so it, it, a lot of it pressure was, on you to perform. I know, I know, and it and it really was a family enterprise. I mean, my parents became missionaries when I was uh, I was 11 years old, you know, and and, and so going house to house and and church to church i mean i've visited hundreds if not thousands of churches and even being on the mission field my parents were very insistent that i have my own um you know ministry kind of kind of way that i i i worked on things um it was it was a family obligation on your point with uh you know servant leadership i think i almost think it's kind of a cop out Right to say, oh well, if we're serving other people, we're just going to we're yeah. just going to acquiesce to whatever they right. whatever they right. say. You know, that's right. that's that's fine. Something that I've been thinking through. Um, I mean, prayerfully, honestly, I I haven't been thinking through it. I've been praying about it. You know, as I as I move into marriage this this September, and American Moment is not the first thing that I've helped start. Emma is not the first employee I've ever had. Um, there are some certain parallels to be drawn between uh you know leading a a team of individuals in the workplace and and also leading your family Uh, namely in that there was a huge burden of responsibility to lead and not just to provide but to actually have some sort of direction not to say oh you know, I don't know, honey, like, what do you think? Or I don't know, right. like, employee, what but do like you think? But, like, actively setting the vision. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so- and not only that, when you hire someone, 
you know, someone commits to a new enterprise that you're starting, that is an immense responsibility to, you know, your investors or your funders, to your employees. Like you have to deliver for them. You can't just say, oh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I start my newsletter and and one of the benefits of that mostly being a, you know, solo enterprise is, ah, I don't like, if I get a good job offer, I can just shut it down. I can walk away. You know, you can't just walk away from things when you have other people you know, involved and it certainly can't walk away from your marriage. Mm-hmm. And so that I think becomes, there is yeah. a way of responsibility there when people are making a big investment in you. Right. So, you know, you know, when my wife decided to marry me, like she really made a big, big bet. Right. On success. Well, and I, I, I think my fiance as well, like she's, yeah. she's betting not just on my um, financial success, yeah. you know, which is kind of like, right whatever right my parents are 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 missionaries and are like just poor like that's what being a missionary is yeah um but they 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 still selected each other for um the success of their of their ultimate life together and i would say you know 20 something years in that that's been um right a pretty i would say that it's that it's a pretty good bet um I want to shift a little bit to the topic of, um, you know, I was I was listening to your uh, newsletter, which is a great feature that you have. Uh, can, we, can we promo where to get that, by the way? Yeah, go for it. The I was ma- going to ask you at the, the end. But... com. Go there and sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> and we're going to we're going to pimp that link a bunch okay, of times good, because, good. I mean, for me and many of my friends i mean we sincerely hope you don't walk away from your newsletter because it's been <laughs> not not planning to do that it's because it's been a great uh source right. of uh you know what it means to be a man and and you know how to lead families and companies and even yeah. communities uh so we greatly appreciate all the work that you're doing yeah the but stuff I, that's in it you're not going to get here at anywhere else this is unique stuff yeah Absolutely. we can testify to that yeah yeah, yeah. so i i want to ask you about one of your recent pieces that was that was very um it's rare that I say this, but I've been chewing on it uh, for a little <laughs> while. Um, you you wrote a newsletter called "Build Men Up, Don't Tear Women Down." Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of setting the stage. You, if you have the opportunity, again, please go to that link um, and read it or listen to it. Um, but you talk about how you know women are on, um, you know, uh, generally speaking on mood altering, you know, medications there, uh, but, uh, but they're also in positions of influence. They're getting into jobs they're getting high wages, working a lot of hours, um, not having kids, not married, and they're less happy than they've ever been. Um, can you kind of set the stage for why is that and why should we care? Sure. I think the reason I wrote that piece is because a lot of times what happens is, uh, you know, men out there, they'll find some site on the manosphere or somewhere else, and they're out there like they get red pilled. That's how I got radicalized. They, like, get, they get they get red pilled, yeah. and it's like, oh yeah. yeah, and they start, you know, they start taking an extremely negative view. It's like, you know, yeah. she deserves, you know, she deserves it. I'm just gonna, you know, there, so there's there's all these things. So like, one, I'm just gonna, you know, be a pickup artist and like, you know, use right. them and then toss them, or you know, I'm gonna be a man going my own way, which mm-hmm. means I'm gonna try to avoid women right. or whatever. But it becomes a very negative thing and i always uh, there's this uh famous quip it's, it's it's always attributed to henry kissinger 
uh, it predated him, but you know we'll give him the credit. It's like no one will ever win the battle of the sexes because there's too much fraternizing with the enemy. <laughs> and I like to say that, like, yeah. that, you know, the vast majority of people are heterosexuals who desire to be married. Right. And so, uh, and since there are roughly equal numbers of men and women, what that means is we're invested in each other's success. Right. And so, uh, before I always say this, you know, when women earn 60% of college degrees mm -hmm. and men earn 40%, and we see that empirically women want to marry uh, a guy at their level or above, mm -hmm. they certainly don't want to marry down. And certainly educational attainment is one of those things that they view. Right. Like, I got a college degree. I don't want to marry a man who didn't go right. to college. And so that creates problems now, doesn't it? <laughs> because yeah. you have these mismatches. Same thing. Right. I want to marry. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian woman. I want to marry a man who's a Christian. Oh, actually, there's way more women than there are men in church. Right. So that, that these things cause cause problems. So I, I say, look, you know, I, I focus in a lot of the problems that men are having. But I think in order, you know, you want to build men up, but you don't want to say, OK, we're going to we're going to take this teeter totter the other direction. Right. And it's going to be like the Rolling Stones song, you know, under my thumb, you know, the, you know <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't want to work like that. And the fact I do think we need to realize that, like, although many ways society has been much more favorable towards women in their their uh, their interest than it's ever been. Right. That there are a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of challenges out there. And I do know, like, um, you, you know, as not not all women, but like a very high percentage, you know, close to 25% in some studies of women, adult women are on antidepressants. Right. That's a lot. Certainly much, much higher, higher right. than men. You go to any, you know, go to Christianity Today magazine or any, any Christian publication, and you'll hear the articles from pastors or women saying, where have all the good been going? Right. I, you know, they're, they're, they want to be married and right. where are the men? So they're, they're unhappy. Um, they're unhappy about that. Right. And I would say, if you don't want to get married, don't get married. So I'm not saying everybody has to get married. I'm talking about people who do want to get married. Right. And they're frustrated, and they're so frustrated they're writing about it. Right. As you go on that, you go on down the line, you start seeing that, yeah, there are a lot of issues that women are very unhappy. And one of the great, there was a great uh, uh, NBER paper that showed, you know, since 1970, women's happiness has declined both absolutely and relative to men. It used to be that women were on average more happy than men. Now it's mm -hmm. like basically reversed that men are on mm -hmm. average more happy than other women. Right. So I think, you know, to some extent, men are, are underachieving, but men can be pretty content living at home in mom's basement playing video games, right? So they, <laughs> you know, and right. watching porn and doing whatever they do. Right. You know, so they, 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 you know, so we see that there are these issues with women. And I think we ought to recognize right. legit where there are legitimate issues. Right. With women, I don't think, no, do I think that like the main cause of family breakdown is, you know, uh, men abandoning their wife and kids? No, that's empirically false. Right. Right. But, you know, some men do. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like try to just become the the, all, the automatic right. defender of men or try to say women are better. I think right. we need to recognize that like there are a lot of things that are challenging for women today. There have been women who've been abused and yeah. treated, treated badly. And so we ought to recognize that and our goal ought to be, I want to build men up. I don't want to tear women down. I think the, right. the, the more successful, happy uh, women are, the more that they are developing their talents and all these things right. and flourishing, the better it's going to be for you as a guy who wants to get married. Right. And I think vice versa. Right. So I think that's what, you know, maybe maybe a lot of women don't get. It's okay, great. Right. Uh, the, here's the pool of men. You know, no, not a lot of people, right. not a lot of people have a lot of sympathy for the incels, you know, for <laughs> example. But like every incel who... You know, can't even get a date. He's over there. That probably means there's a woman over here who's right. never going to get married. Who's 
never going to have the kids that she wants to have. Right. And so just roughly, you know, these failures kind of balance each other out. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of these manosphere guys, like, so you know, the women, they're sluts, they're sleeping around, whatever. Like, right. well, I, I think mathematically the total number of sexual, heterosexual sexual encounters are actually the same, you know, between <laughs> men and women. So it's like, you know, you could say that, but what does that mean about you? Right. What does that say about you? Right. Right. What's your role? Right. In, in creating this scenario. And so that's what I mean. Like this is, right. this is something where, uh, you know, it's kind of a joint, it is sort of right. a joint enterprise, whether we want it to be or not. Right. And you write on this um, in an Institute for Family Studies piece where you say something to be extended, like if you want to make the family, like if you want to help the family make the home great again. And I think um, your comments earlier talking about the fundamental shift of our understanding of home pre-industrialization yeah. to post-industrialization. And like that's just a huge understudied, underdiscussed aspect of this, where all of a sudden commerce and like the connection in the home between husband and wife laboring together, raising the family together on their farm, like with their like shared, I don't know, like their blacksmiths together, like whatever they, there yeah. was versus like men now being outside the home. So the home is no longer a place of a coming together of life between the two. And so like, I imagine like that would be incredibly isolating for women, right? And so like we, um, so you have like women online who were single and no kids and they talk about, you know, drinking wine mm-hmm. and like getting tipsy with their friends. And then at the same time, you have a ton of moms on Twitter saying, if I don't have a glass of wine by 10 a.m., how right. am I going to make it through the day with the kids uh, right. and like on both ends there's obviously a breakdown there that maybe doesn't have as much to do with like the externalities of their life as much as it is like a fundamental break between the like male and female relationship that's so essential to our flourishing yeah you know uh, there's this uh, famous uh, you know conservative catchphrase ideas have consequences <laughs> yes and ideas do have consequences but lots of other things have consequences too and I think because of Karl Marx a lot of conservatives are allergic to the idea of material causes. <laughs> but I think realistically, yeah. the the shift from a pre-industrial to an industrial society pervasively restructured every aspect right. of society, completely reconstructed the home. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the challenges that we have are attempting to reconcile ourselves to the realities of industrial and post-industrial mm-hmm society and you know i think about tocqueville everybody likes to talk about tocqueville and um you know tocqueville i think kind of missed industrialization Mm -hmm. and urbanization and he talks about like the new england town meeting and and the new england town and the offices that people held just like Mm -hmm. these you know kind of uh, training grounds for self-governance but when you live in a rural or small town new england environment in a pre-industrial economy self-governance makes a lot of sense Right. When you live in New York City with a regional population of 20 million people, <laughs> that requires immense amounts right. of highly technical skill to right. administer the vast infrastructure and bureaucracy and services that it takes to administer and govern a city like that. Yeah. You know, I, I just, you know, we've become very, uh, you know, uh, I think we haven't reconciled. We haven't reconciled ourselves to that. We haven't really reckoned with the right. the change that that represents going from essentially a rural society to this large-scale urban society. I mean, in the year 1800, there was only one city in the entire world with a million people in it. And that's very rare. I mean, you read about Mm -hmm. these cities in the Bible, like Assyria, or uh, excuse me, Babylon, or Mm -hmm. Nineveh. 
100,000, 200,000. These are probably the biggest cities in the world. Yeah. And they'd be almost be considered small towns today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like, yes, you know, Rome at its height might have had a million or, you know, Beijing right. in 1800 had a million. But like this idea of a, a city of 20 million people. Yeah. These mega, it's like, it's a completely different, the revolution in scale, scale of organizations, right. scale of cities has just revolutionized our society in, in ways that we have not fully reckoned with any implications for our family. And of course, a lot of people actually have written about this. Right. You know, I, I in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm certainly not an original thinker on this topic. I mostly take, again, what other people have and try to like recapitulate it to people in ways that you can think about like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, what does it mean to have a household today mm-hmm. when it's no longer an economically productive? Think about like the pre-industrial household. It was where, you know, the economy happened. It was where education happened. It was mm-hmm. where healthcare happened. It was where the social safety net happened. In many ways, it was where policing and defense happened. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in old England, you had to raise the hue and cry. Or, <laughs> or even think about the old West. Yeah. We're going to get a posse together and go check, uh, chase after the criminals. Or in the Bible, when Lot is captured and Abraham and his men go get him back. Right. I mean, it's like, or um, or the, the elders of the city are sitting at the gate judging the city. The city's being administered right. by the heads of these households who are who are there. And so it's like, wow, the household was a very functional entity. Well, today the households don't do much. Right. And so that the 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 leeching of all the functionality out of the right. household is one of the things that's fragilized the family. It's not just ideologies, although right. ideologies play a role. Right. But the economic transition right. that robbed most of the functionality of the family mm-hmm. made it intensely um you know, intentionally, you know, kind of inherently fragile right. because it's not like in the old days, if you weren't married, um, you know, if you didn't have a house, like you had, you were in trouble. Uh, you know, this kind of radical Catholic priest, Ivan Illich, he had this, like he talks about, he wrote a book called Gender, which is excellent. You should read it. And he talked about what, what, what it meant to be a bachelor in like 14th century Europe. Right. It meant you had like the shirt on your back and no other clothes. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause there was yeah. no one to make clothes. You couldn't just go down to the store and buy a shirt. Right. Like, you were in bad shape. Yeah. Right. If you were a bachelor. Yeah. And and I and I said to say that there weren't, you know, there were there were, you know, there were actually high percentages of singles in the late nineteenth century. So this idea that everyone was married is just is false. But this right. you know, you really kind of needed to be married. You needed to be in a household in order to to really flourish in these societies. And so I think it's um, you know, even if you weren't married, maybe you were Maybe you were the the spinster aunt who lived with someone. Right. You were living. You were in right. a household doing right. stuff. It wasn't that sort of thing. And I think we've lost a lot. Of, we don't think about that, mm-hmm. and we don't think about what you know economic transition has really done to our our, our social institutions. Right. And so I think here's the thing about that is is post industrial revolution, mm-hmm. it's become I think pretty easy to just exist mm-hmm. to be a person. Right. You know you have. The atomic individual right like you have you have you know the doctor nearby you have the internet you know as a as a resource you can order food delivered to your front door for sustenance right. you know you're not responsible for uh, you know enriching yourself or, or, or making yourself a better person and people have been really i think concerned about this in the past you know i i think um i just finished reading this book forgetting what it's called but it's um specifically about uh you know teddy roosevelt and henry cabot lodge and how a lot of these uh you know people 
basically dove into the Spanish-American War uh, as a way to prove themselves, mm-hmm. to say, right. no, 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 we're still men. Like, society yeah. is progressing, and it's easier to be a person, but we're still men. We can still conquer stuff. We can still go to war. Uh, and I think that has even accelerated to today. I yeah. mean, you you can live in your mother's basement and play video games and, like, still survive as a person. Right. Um, but still not be a man. Right. And to and, and and not be maybe a fulfilled person, right. um, whether it's in your community or, or in Christ and your in, in your church. Um, what I'm curious about, and this is something that I've personally been wrestling with. So maybe this is even better advice for me than for our listeners. But I've been trying to think through how do you become a man and still enrich yourself personally and morally without building a cabin in the woods and fully withdrawing from society yeah really great question by the way henry cabot lodge jr resigned a u.s senate seat to go fight in world war ii can you imagine anybody in the senate today mm. you know resigning their well they're all 80 but yeah they're all over but, the age of 80 but, but, I was they would be the best resource but yeah that, that that's um you know i think there is there is something to that uh this idea you go back like a lot of things happen with this transition you know the closing of the frontier right industrialization the age of exploration basically came to an end think about the great explorers people who just sailed off i'm going to circumnavigate the globe i'm going to try to reach the south pole or climb mount everest you know most of that the age of exploration of being able to prove Mm -hmm. yourself in the unknown that that kind of came to there's a lot of things happening here and so people uh there are people who are sort of just vegetating but i do think there's this idea that you know men and, and this is what the church doesn't help with they don't help you to develop your your potentialities, your talents, mm-hmm. to really see what you can accomplish, you know, to push yourself. And where I think a lot of it is really manifested today is extreme sports. Mm. <laughs> you know, how yes. do people get so interested in extreme sports? Right. Or like, how can we test the limits? I remember when that, uh, was it Felix Baumgartner who did the parachuting from 100,000 feet? He was going to try to get to set the parachuting record and... You know, it was Red Bull's a big thing, and like yeah. millions of people are watching this thing stream. I'm like, did he's, he die? No, he was fine. Oh, good. But like, his guy took, <laughs> That's he took, like he, he took this. Uh, actually, somebody beat him uh, after that, but it, it didn't get all the press. <laughs> uh, but like the, the the record altitude for uh, yeah, you mm-hmm. know, for a skydive had been set like long, long ago. And this guy like went up in a balloon to the edge of space. I mean, you, you basically see the the video from mm-hmm. the live stream, and you can see the curvature of the Earth. This guy's on the he's in a spacesuit up there the aerosol then and apparently he's going to go supersonic so it's like what are you going to do when your fall is going to be supersonic how's that going to work so like this idea i'm going to do the more extreme a lot of people want to climb mount everest they're looking for these challenges and i do think i do think there's that right you know there's no more mountains left to climb there's no more places left to explore (laughs) i've been struggling with this so much it's like where do i go in the sense that a previous generation could have right. just headed to the frontier. Right. They could have done those things. Go west, young man. Right. And so there is this sense of um, uh, of, of of an enclosed world where we think right. we know everything. And, of course, that's a false knowledge, yeah. you know, in a sense. But, but I do think it's it's left us. People are looking for an out. People are looking for these uh, outlets. Right. Some people are seeking it in transhumanism. Right, you know, or like these te- techno futures. So there's a lot of that. That's a, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and that's where I feel like 
to come back to the church, the church does not help you to develop virtue in the sense of like, ex, you know, excellences, manly excellences, and like how to develop all your potentialities. Right. Which is, yeah, I think that's what, that's what the internet guys, a lot of them right. are doing. You know, I think even MMA is like part of this. All these mm. things, it's, it's like, right. This is, this is where people are looking and like, so how do we get into that and, right. and, and tap into that primal desire mm. to, uh, you know, trans, almost it is a desire for transcendence. Right. It's a, a desire to, to transcend the limits of what we perceive, right. you know, we're capable of to grow beyond it, it. You know, if it's human beings, as men, as individuals to grow beyond what we even think we're capable of, uh, how do, how do we do that in a, and channel that in a healthy way? Right. Not in a, you know, how can I clear level 72 on this video game? Right. Now, how can I have sex with 30 women in 30 days? Or something <laughs> like that. But like, how do we channel that into something that is essentially sublimated into a form that's beneficial for society? But we don't have a good right. answer. We don't have a good answer for that today. Right. Uh, you, you know, and, and I do think, uh, I do think that's a challenge. Right. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. So what is so wonderful and dynamic about Aaron is not only does he have a podcast and newsletter talking about masculinity, but he also talks about conservatism and understanding our political discourse okay. today. Um, and so one of my favorite series that you have run is actually on the history and origins of conservatism. <laughs> um, I came into conservatism um, a bit later in life, and a lot of our listeners probably had a similar progression. Um, you know, everyone goes through the libertarian right. phase, and then we grow up and right. move to conservatism. <laughs> and then um, we turn 22. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like you hit Actually. that age. Yeah. yeah, that's what happened to me. Yeah, I think real. yeah, I think we're probably pretty similar similar in that. And so your series on that was so insightful and in actually understanding like where did conservatism come from? Um, and like any good conservative, I'm attempting to read Russell Kirk's um, The Conservative yeah. Mind. I've never read that one, actually. Right, yeah. And so he starts the book off like um, housing conservatism in Edmund Burke and says, okay, this is where it began and then like builds from there. Um, but in your series, you actually basically say, yeah, that's actually a myth. And there's a much like much more nuanced history of conservatism. Um, I'm reading a book on Phyllis Safely right now. Mm. Um, and so she's a conservative working for like yeah. Barry Goldwater, et cetera. And like conservatives were 100% the fringe group that yeah. no one liked. Like right. she got voted out of like the Republican Women's Federation right. because they were like, oh, these conservatives, they're really messing things up. Um, and so like having the Republican Party and conservatism be so like um, indistinguishable today is actually from what you said, very rare. Um, so could you just walk us through like um, a history of conservatism conservatism and the conservative party today especially setting us up to understand like this current this realignment that we're going through um and sort of like this re-understanding of the conservative movement um potentially distinguishable from the republican party once again yeah when i was at the manhattan institute i realized that you know honestly i really didn't know where conservatism came from i mm -hmm. believed all this stuff and i'm like why do i believe this where did it come from you know in the 80s it's like conservatism yay reagan it's like but I didn't really know where it came from. So I went back and started reading some histories. And the canonical history of the conservative movement is by a guy named George Nash. I believe it's mm -hmm. called the Conservative Intellectual Movement since 1945 mm -hmm. or, or something like that. And it only actually goes up through the 70s. And then the second edition has like one chapter that like takes it up to 1990 or something like that. But it gives yeah. you a sense of the origins. And, and so I can't do full justice to it. Um, but if that is really the canonical history for people mm -hmm. who are interested and the key is modern American conservatism is a post-war uh, intellectual movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the challenges that Nash identified that they needed was 
we're the conservative people, but we're new. <laughs> like, yeah. how does that work? <laughs> right. And, yeah. and, uh, and they also had to solve this problem of, you know, America was sort of a liberal nation in a classical mm -hmm. sense. Classical liberalism was, you know, liberalism. Well, you know, Amer liberalism is the authentic American tradition. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to be conservative, you should be conserving liberalism. <laughs> and so, you know, he talks about they had to yeah. essentially construct a pedigree for themselves. Right. And and so they, they basically go back to Burke and there's the founders and all these people. Mm -hmm. And here's a really important point to make. Um Yes, there are these ideas from Burke and the founding and all this mm -hmm. stuff, but there is no organic continuity of thought or people mm -hmm. between Edmund Burke and today's conservatives. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's very different uh, from other. So I like to talk about Straussianism. People have talked about Strauss. So Leo Strauss was this professor who trained a lot of grad students and is profoundly influential in American conservatism. Right. So if you're a Straussian today, you can probably trace your lineage back to Strauss. Mm -hmm. So Leo Strauss had a student called Harry Jaffa, uh, who fe features heavily in Nash's book. Harry Jaffa became the founder of what's called the West Coast Straussianism, Straussians. Mm -hmm. So the kind of the Claremont, that whole, you know, Michael Anton, all that. West Coast Straussianism came through Harry Jaffa. Mm -hmm. Well, Harry Jaffa had a student named Larry Arn. Mm. And then Eric Larry Arn out of the Claremont Institute. Now he's the president of Hillsdale. Right. And now Larry Arn has students who that he is training. Right. And so you think about that. If you're a student of Larry Arn and you're standing, I'm a Straussian, you can actually trace a chain of people going back to Strauss. Right. Right. You have like there's an intellectual tradition there. The same thing is true with Marxism. Mm -hmm. There's an intellectual and kind mm -hmm. of chain of custody going all the way back to Marx. Right. That is not true with conservatism. There were some pre-war conservative threads um, that got got uh, put into it. But by and large, American conservatism developed in the post-war mm -hmm. era in the United States. It's not an ancient tradition right. uh, in America. That's one of the most important things to think about it. And, uh, and you know, basically, so basically they, they, you know, the book, the, the potted history here would be there was the, there was the original three-legged stool which was anti-communism, uh, sort of libertarian economics, and yeah. traditionalism. And the big challenge was to reconcile traditionalism with libertarianism, <laughs> which was this concept yeah. called fusionism. Mm -hmm. and fusionism was basically the idea that, uh, you know, this kind of traditional morality and culture is critical to the flourishing of a free market. But in order to really have virtue, in, you have to freely choose it. So there has to be free right. choice. So they tried to like have both and that came up there. Then, you know, the neo, the neoconservatives came in in the, in the 60s and mm -hmm. the 70s and the 80s. And then there was the new right in the 70s. And, uh, but I think one of the key transitions I would say is, is if you listen to somebody talk about the three-legged stool today, they'll often say the three-legged stool was essentially like, you know, anti-communism, kind of free market and social conservatism. That's not, I mean, I'd say that's not true. Social conservatism, as we understand it today, was really not part of it. It was more of a, it was a traditionalism. There was a Catholic right. aspect. But essentially, evangelicals were plurality Democrat mm -hmm. as recently as 1980. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it was 1976 that Time Magazine proclaimed their year of the evangelical because Jimmy Carter, who was an evangelical, <laughs> was elected president. Right. Yeah. And so the evangelicals were mostly Democrats. Um, 
you know, up until the Reagan administration. And then some of right. these kind of culture war issues around abortion and that started started pulling mm-hmm. in the right direction. So, I mean, I you can go down on all the minutiae, but I, I do think one of the keys is that, you know, conservatism really did start as a post-war mm-hmm. political movement. It's not an ancient movement going back to the founding or Burke or, you know, whatever. And by the way, nobody claims that it is, yeah. you know, today. Anybody who has read it, but I think a lot of people... You know, a lot of people who I think the key is if you're a conservative today, do you know where your ideas came from? Yeah. Right. How did how did we get here? I So I think that's kind of it's kind of an interesting one to me. The other thing that I think is very interesting. We were talking about this earlier because, you know, we're, all, we're I think we're all Protestants. Right. So, yeah. Yes. Is, is how Catholic dominated conservatism. <laughs> right. Is. And this is really is this is one that uh, that gets is less attention. But I think it's very important. Conservatism started as a movement on the social margins, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. Yeah. So at the, at the, in the 50s, you might think of as like when conservatism is getting going, America still had a very strong WASP establishment, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Mm-hmm. It was very liberal in general. There were conservatives. Uh, you can think of Senator Robert Taft mm-hmm. representing sort of the isolationist yeah. you know, strain yeah. of kind of pre-war conservatism. And... That group largely went extinct. Guys like Taft, mm-hmm. they, they didn't really join in with conservatism. So conservatism yeah. was very heavily started by like guys like William F. Buckley, mm-hmm. who was a, you know, he was Catholic, right? He was Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. So there a lot of Catholics, a lot of European intellectuals, uh, and a number of Jewish intellectuals mm-hmm. as well. And so there were there were some Protestants involved. There were some waspy people involved. If you, the Pews, for example, J. Howard Pew was a big financier. Uh, mm-hmm. of conservatism but it really started by people who are kind of on the outside if you think about that you think about william f buckley jr's book god and man at yale mm-hmm. you know he wrote that in i think in the 50s here's a guy who was this irish catholic upstart who was admitted into the citadel of wasp culture at yale he's a he's, a, he's skull and bones he's all this stuff and he just takes a big dump on him. <laughs> i mean think about that right yeah. i mean what what how that was perceived by them it's like Yes, we've opened our doors to you, the social newcomer, right. and here's how you repay us. Right. And and so I think there is this element of so I do think there's this element of um, social class mm-hmm. has played a lot, and that's like you know you think of the Republican Party and conservatism as kind of lower status in society today, and I think it was always it was a little bit always that way. Right. And I think we like to think of William F. Buckley. If we think of a wasp, what does a wasp sound like? We probably think of William F. Buckley on firing line. <laughs> but the reality was he was Catholic. And so conservatism yeah. has been hugely Catholic dominated right. today. And I think there's still like a huge pattern of people who get involved in movement conservatism who convert to Catholicism. Right. Tons of people are Catholic converts. So Arthur Brooks, former president of AI, is Catholic convert. Mm-hmm. Um, Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine, Catholic convert. Ross Douthat, Catholic convert. So Rob Amari, Catholic mm-hmm. convert, you know. Uh, J.D. Vance, Catholic convert. There's just so many people yeah. who are Catholic converts. And they all have right. the zeal of the convert. Right. Right. I think a lot of this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, the Sarab Amari, David French thing is this, the zeal, the zealousness of the convert. Yeah. Adrian Vermeule, I think, is a very recent convert to Catholicism. All of these people are friends of the pod. Yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> but at this point, like, this is right. important. It, it, there is this kind of like these social dimensions, you know, can't, can't be o- o- overlooked. Right. So I think there always kind of has been like, conservatism has had a very catholic mm-hmm. bias to it 
In fact, Michael Lind, you many of y'all probably know mm-hmm. Michael Lind, he gets a lot of credit. They, back, you know, Michael Lind was originally a conservative and he had a very public break with conservatism. Mm-hmm. He wrote a resignation letter, if you want to <laughs> say that, from conservatism in yeah. Dissent Magazine. Mm-hmm. Now, Dissent Magazine is a leftist magazine. It was founded by Irving Howe, mm-hmm. who's one of the New York intellectuals. Irving Howe is also the founder of the Democratic Socialist of America. Okay. Very nice. So he wrote this letter and one of his complaints was basically these kind of like stupid idiot evangelicals have come in and taken over our show. Yeah. And Interesting. the fact that they're letting doofuses like Pat Robertson <laughs> kind of like set the agenda. Yeah. No thanks. And so it really was kind of a repudiation. It's like, and, and you know, the reality is that the evangelicals, there's a famous book, the scandal of the evangelical mind, the scandal is it doesn't have one. You know, <laughs> there is, a, <laughs> you know, and that's still kind of true. Yeah, I do. I do, I do. <laughs> I do think there's a sense in which, you know, the Protestant intelligentsia were all liberals. Right. Yeah. And they still are all liberals. Yes. Yeah. And so that that was an issue that, and, and this is one of the biggest problems with conservatism today. And I, one of the reasons I started investigating this is I'm trying to think, what the heck is going on yeah. in this world? And so you got to read about what's going on. Right. Like, wow, we don't think about social class today. Right. We don't think about these religious divisions mm-hmm. and like what it meant to, you know, right. be a Catholic or a Jew in the 50s. Right. You know, we don't think about that. You know, we don't think about, um, you, you know, so, so, there's, so there's a lot going on there. So what's going on? One of the problems was the voting base of the Republican Party today is you know, kind of called low caste Protestants. And yet the leadership, uh, there's very little representation of that in leadership. You know, right. David French, for example, who's one of the you know, pr- you know prominent, uh, you know, prominent kind of, uh, you know, evangelical Protestant. Mm-hmm. David French is not a decider. You know what he's saying? Yeah. He's not, he's not really setting the agenda yeah and that the, the, you know the the agenda of conservatism is not being set right by protestant thinkers the protestants are designed to their their role is supposedly just to be a vote bank yes. and i always yeah. say that it's like conservatives yeah. love to look at the democratic party and say don't blacks know they're just being exploited by these other people and they're mm-hmm. just a vote bank yep you know for this other group. but it's like the reality is there's an analogy there evangelicals fundamentalist, all that stuff are a vote bank for the Republican party and are not really given a seat at the table right. in deciding what to do. And so right. I think that, that is part of the elite base split mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that the elite and the base have very serious sociological differences that are, that it's not just based on, um, it's not just based on education or income. Mm-hmm. It's also based on some of these things like, yeah, there's there's Catholics here, and then there's this massive vote of highly reliable, eighty percent Trump voting evangelical right. white voting block that doesn't have a lot of leadership representation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a large part of why you know when Sarab gave me the call about American Moment and about what we're doing that I I decided to jump in the fight uh, yeah. because there aren't a lot of. Uh, See, I don't want to call like David French not smart, but like there aren't a lot of very uh, woke Protestants within the movement. I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, I respect greatly. Like I'm inviting Adrian Vermeule to my wedding, right? Like I've never met the guy, but we DM. He's a good dude. Uh, But but there really is a lack of like uh, Protestants um, in this movement. And I think you've. You've hit the nail on the head. Well, frankly, the Catholics have been smarter. I mean, it gives you a yeah. part of it. I think you have to acknowledge, yeah. it, you know, if you get to take a look, take stock of yourself first, the Catholics have been smarter. The Protestant intellectuals have tended to be on the left. 
Right. To be, to be quite honest. Right. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. And, you know, I know there are a lot of people that would say, I mean, I can picture a lot of the Catholics in my life saying this, but that it's because, you know, the lack of Catholic structure or whatever has made it, um, you know, easier to be uh, morally relative. Um, I, I, I just think that it's, um, you know, coupled with history and just kind of the weakness of uh, connection between Protestant churches. Um mm-hmm you know, have, have left us kind of like derelict of the leadership, uh, that we truly need uh, to succeed in America. Uh, you know, one of the challenges with conservatism has been, you know, there's a great book by, uh, uh, Albert Hirschman called, uh, I think it's exit voice and loyalty, Mm. uh, which is basically like, what do you do? Uh, Highly recommended book, by the way, it's a great framing. What do you do when an organization you're a customer of or a part of is failing? It's going the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. There are basically two options. Exit, you're going to leave and go somewhere else. You know, United Airlines treated me bad. I'll go to American Airlines, right? Or voice, I'll complain. Mm -hmm. I'll call the CEO of American Airlines or United Airlines and complain about the treatment that I got. Right. And in America, Hirschman makes this observation. In America, exit has been extraordinarily privileged. Mm. And uh, so Americans are a people of exit. We go to the frontier. We don't renew this community. We go to that community. And conservatism has been a movement of exit. Mm. We exit the cities. We move to the red suburb. Right. We leave California. We move to Texas. Right. And I think that has been an enormous weakness in conservatism because what it meant is conservatism has essentially surrendered the cultural high ground of America um, mm. to that. And so I, I think about this in terms of uh, Protestant, you know, Protestantism. Mm-hmm. You know, the vow, the institutional value of the mainline denominations, the Episcopal Church, the yeah. Presbyterian Church. You think about these amazing church buildings and the stature that that had. And so it's like, well, you know, great. I'll leave the liberal church and go start a new church plant. That's always the first thing. My pastor's gone woke. I'm going to go leave to this other church. The, yeah. The, yeah. That is that conservative. I don't think that's conservative. I think mm. reality is conservative would say stand and fight. And so mm. if you look at like evangelicalism, there's an enormous bias towards church planting, starting new churches. Mm. Uh, very little like, hey, let's go revive an old church. Or like, yeah. hey, I want to stand my ground, fight. Right. Which is why there's kind of been a massive, I think, blue expansion over time is conservatism. Mm. has really dramatically the first the first go-to move is always get out mm-hmm. exit yeah and so you think about that and I, I really think that's a big problem and part of the challenge with that from from this intellectual perspective is kind of the protestant intellectual tradition the mainline tradition which was very powerful mm-hmm. it was at the cultural center of america the conservatives exited it mm. they exited it they left yeah. um yes if you go back even a hundred years, the leadership of the Protestant church was extremely far to the left. In fact, they were the avant-garde left right. in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. The rank and file in the pews didn't feel that way. Mm. Probably, you know, the 80% of the people were still basic, conservative, traditional, you know, Christian people. Yeah. You know, the fact that the, you know, the leadership was out there was an issue, but like now over time, what happened? What, oh, they're all gone. They, they kind of, they mm-hmm. all leave. They're actually... I think it's one of the great myths that all these mainline churches are terrible. Actually, there are many still phenomenal, faithful mainline churches. Right. But so I think so. I think this is a key. This loss of that mainline Protestant right. tradition and that heritage. Again, right? Where did Harvard come from? Where did Yale come from? Where did Princeton come from? Where did all this stuff come from? Mm. 
these great institutions, these phenomenal buildings, these great endowments, it was all essentially abandoned. Yeah. And, you know, when you're constantly running away Mm -hmm. and you're never fighting, like, in a serious way, um, Mm -hmm. when you're never contesting ownership, that's a problem. And so I feel like that's one of the reasons that conservatism, you know, has really, it's put itself on the margins Right. You know, we're no longer in the main institutions of society. We're off in our own little ghetto, mm-hmm. basically. We've right. created a ghetto, right? You know, for ourselves, and that's a that's a problem. Yeah, Aaron, I hate to cut this short. <laughs> I told you before the show that I legitimately could record six hours with you just talking about this topic. Uh, I suppose we'll have to. have Somebody you told back. me we were going to spend forty percent of our time talking about infrastructure. Yeah, we never even got <laughs> to it because because. Your word was I, so good. I'm yeah. like, I actually printed off an old article I wrote for American Affairs on infrastructure from 2017. I'm like, what do I think about this topic? <laughs> well, we'll have to uh, save it for next time. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Take the opportunity to plug those links again. Yes, go to themasculinist.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you know, Get on the podcast. Everything's there. Mm-hmm. And you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Aaron underscore Wren. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Aaron. Every week, we like to highlight a piece on AMCAM and our content aggregator on our website. And this week, the piece that we wanted to highlight is Stop Hedging, Start Marrying by Mary Harrington. Um, this has been something that's been on my heart uh, for the last couple weeks and, and months. You know, I mentioned on the show today, uh, getting married here at the end of September is a very exciting time. Uh, a recurring theme with um, friends, acquaintances, family members has been, Nick, you're so young. Mm-hmm. You're, you're 24 years old. Are you sure that you want to, you want to make this life altering decision right now? Are you sure that you're going to want to move into this lifelong commitment before, you know, the male brain is fully, fully formed, formed at age 25 or whatever? Um, my answer has been a resolute yes. Um, I think we've seen a, a considerable, downturn in society since we stopped making marriage at a younger age a priority mm-hmm. i think the important thing to note is that uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna pause to get on my soapbox here <laughs> that i i think marriage is less of a uh you know i experienced this great hollywood like love feeling where uh, everything feels good all the time and i never have any problems it's much more a commitment it's much more you know in the same way that you would enter into a into a legal contract and Mm -hmm. marriage by the way does have a legal component to it but i think you're committing to love that person uh, but not just love them commit to working with them to solve any issues that may arise in the future and that's something that i think we've gotten away from something that we're trying to educate all these you know young men and women in dc on at american moment as a fellow young person and a uh, second time uh, pod co-host, Emma, what do you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting in Mary's article is she begins her story talking about her 20s, where she was incredibly concerned with this idea of equality um, and having like this feminist stance in society. And so she actually joined, um, for lack of better terms, like a polyamorous lesbian community. And the goal there was equality and everyone wins and like we're not like held down by these limitations of marriage and of relationships, especially goodness forbid with like one person for the rest of my life. Um, And this piece actually goes through talking about how it's in this false narrative of like you can be truly equal with other people that ended up just being incredibly coercive very poor for her well-being um and so she like talks us through this story of where she ended up leaving that community um deciding to get married um and this idea that like one our culture views marriage as like the pinnacle that you reach like once you've like secured a good career you hit your 30s you're like pretty set in life then you can get married because you've achieved this endpoint. um and the problem with that is one like your marriage becomes more of a merger of two of two like resources rather than a startup when you have young marriage um and two like we create marriage as this like garnish to life rather than recognizing like its fundamental role in reshaping who you are as a person like nick is no longer just nick like nick is now learning and growing into this like like single entity with um his fiance um that's just incredible and like within those limitations of marriage there's actually a great um a great life and sense of freedom to be found and so her article unpacks that and and like discusses further this idea of marriage as a limitation and boundary but like within that limitation and boundary it's actually where we find um human flourishing um yeah for the first time and like why wouldn't we want to start our life that way um and begin strong rather than just seeing marriage as something that adds to our life rather than like a fundamental portion of it yeah, well, it's the same way that, uh, you know, we, we we come to truth, right? Like, you, right. You, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's it's not, uh, you know, rules are meant to keep you in check and to put you into bondage and to ruin your life. It's, it's to truly set you free. And I view, uh, and I think we view uh, marriage as... Um, you know, kind of a check on the desires of individuality. Uh, I know, at least for me, I suppose I'm the first person uh, at American Moment getting married. But, you know, proposing and, and, and getting ready to make a commitment to marriage has been a uh, deeply radicalizing event. Um, it's it's not just, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to put all, all our uh, financial resources together mm-hmm. and we're just going to you know, buy a farm somewhere and it's going to be fine. I mean, it's, it's, we're committing to in sickness and in health. If, if, you know, one of us is to become disabled, like caring for the other, no matter what we're committing to, to raising children together, to potentially Mm -hmm. leading communities and being involved in a church together. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a much deeper uh, commitment than I think, you know, uh, friendship or just being a part of a community is and i think you know mary harrington uh hits it right on the head when mm-hmm. she says that um uh, you know it can be a um i guess a freeing event mm-hmm. and i want to hit on something that you said this idea of marriage 
um, not as something that like makes you a better person simply, which it should, and not just something that you stay involved in as long as it's actually making you happy and making you feel like you're the best version of yourself. But in reality, like marriage being this commitment that's enduring through that. So you don't just divorce when your spouse no longer makes you happy or you two Mm -hmm. are hitting friction, but you're actually like pressing in and like the amount of like development um, and true refinement that occurs in that relationship is not something that you will encounter in any other relationship in your life but you only reach that point when you are willing to embrace those limitations and continue pressing through even when times get hard yeah well i think that's the thing too is that you're not um just making a commitment to your spouse and 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 to the law as it were you know Mm -hmm. to the federal government you're making a commitment to god um Mm -hmm. to ultimately a, a higher power that you will stay in this no matter what and I pray that none of us um, takes that responsibility lightly. Just to highlight a, a couple of other things, you know, going on in American moment, uh, we obviously were, we're just talking about Am Cannon. Uh, so uh, if you would like to uh, read some of the other pieces like Mary's uh, on our website, uh, that link is AmericanMoment.org slash Amcanon. If you would like to donate to us to support our work and and support this podcast, that's AmericanMoment.org slash donate. Uh, Something else that I'd like to open up to you all, uh, if you'd like to ask us a question, whether it's me, Emma, Sarab, even Jake, who has only appeared on our podcast once, uh, all you have to do is submit a five-star review um, and either include the question in that review or send a screenshot of that review to podcast at americanmoment.org. Uh, we will happily answer your question on air, provided that it is not uh, lewd, I think is the word that we've been using. Um, and then the other part of this uh, is uh, Summit, which is a conference on American statecraft that we are planning on having this fall. Uh, we will have approximately 250 to 300 uh, attendees and speakers that you truly would not believe. Um, I've been the one working on most of the logistics, so I am the keeper of secrets as it were. Uh, but if you would like to fill out the interest form for summit to get kind of an exclusive link for application ahead of public announcement, um, I actually don't know what the link for that is, but AmericanMoment.org, uh, there's an events tab. If you go under there, fill out the conference interest form, uh, you will get that announcement prior to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Emma, uh, as our new employee, any other announcements that you would uh, like to make for the good of the order? <laughs> uh, last but not least, our fellowship is continuing to go strong. Our fellows are doing incredible work all across DC, and we couldn't be more proud of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's been we're we're headed into another day of fellowship tomorrow. Uh, we're catering Chick Fil A, so um, I think they are more probably more excited about that prospect <laughs> than the than the speakers. But tr- truthfully, we have a fantastic group of individuals uh, who we believe are going to make the difference in the coming years and mm-hmm. decades. Um, as always, please subscribe, rate us five stars, give a written review. Email us at podcast at americanmoment.org with any questions you may have. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.